I turn now to our scripture lesson for our sermon this morning, which is in 1 Corinthians as we continue our study of Paul's letter, his first letter to the Corinthians, or the first one in, in any case that is recorded in scripture. As we've talked about before, we know there was another letter that came before this one, but it's not one that God saw fit to preserve for us in the church. But we do have this inspired letter of the Apostle Paul, and because it is inspired by the Holy Spirit, it is without error. And so we read the very word of the living God, 1 Corinthians 6, verses 1 through 8. So let's attend with reverence to the reading of God's word. Dare any of you, having a matter against another, go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world will be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Do you not know that we shall judge angels? How much more things that pertain to this life? If then... You have judgments concerning things pertaining to this life. Do you appoint those who are least esteemed by the church to judge? I say this to your shame. Is it so that there is not a wise man among you, not even one, who will be able to judge between his brethren? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. Now, therefore, it is already an utter failure for you that you go to law against one another, why do you not rather accept wrong? Why do you not rather let yourselves be cheated? No, you yourselves do wrong and cheat, and you do these things to your brethren. This ends the reading of God's holy word for us at this time. May he bless its reading and its exposition and its hearing this morning. The Apostle Paul As we come to this part of his letter to the Corinthians, he has previously talked about petty divisions in the congregation at Corinth. Uh, He's addressed that problem, and addressing that problem really dominated the uh, first four chapters of the letter. And then in chapter 5, we saw recently that he dealt with a particular case of church discipline which needed to be handled and which the church had failed to handle up to this point. And now in chapter 6, he comes to a different topic, though it's clearly related to those topics that we've seen already, both to the problem of this divisive spirit that has existed in this congregation uh, and also to the poor handling of matters of church discipline. When disputes have arisen in the Corinthian church, Instead, in some cases at least, instead of settling them within the church, among the saints, among the brethren, among believers, believers have launched lawsuits against other believers in the secular courts, in the courts of the civil government. And so Paul asks as we begin this passage, Dare any of you, having a matter against another, go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? From verses 7 and 8, we gather that what was going on here was that some were accusing others of having cheated or defrauded them. They have taken the matter before the civil magistrate rather than taking it to the church to settle it. 
These are matters of sin. If one of us were to be accusing another of defrauding him or her, well, that's a matter of sin. And it's one that can be dealt with by the church courts without having to bring them to the civil government. If we, uh, get, if, we, if we skip that part, we actually do one another and the church as a whole a great disservice. We do Christ a disservice. So Paul here is shocked. He's shocked that they would rush to litigation before the secular courts before seeking judgment among the saints. Now that word saint literally means holy ones. Saints are holy ones. If God has called us his holy ones, his people set apart, why cannot we handle these things among ourselves? What we see in this passage is that God actually qualifies Christians collectively to judge. Christians, or the church, are qualified to judge. They're qualified to judge, number one, the world, as we see in this passage, number two, angels, and number three, therefore, if we can judge the world and angels at some point in the future, then certainly can't we now judge earthly disputes between believers. The Lord has qualified the church to judge earthly disputes between believers. Because Christians are so qualified, there are several things that we'll see in this passage that follow. Number one, Christians should not take disputes within the church to the courts of the civil government, certainly not before they have handled them within the church. Number two, Christians should settle such disputes among themselves. Number three, Christians must be willing to accept having been wronged by a brother or sister before parading the church's problems before unbelievers. And fourth, Christians must not cheat each other of the opportunity to repent. Because that's what happens if we take our problems among ourselves outside the church first. We're actually uh, defrauding one another, cheating one another of the opportunity to repent. So let's start by looking at some things the Lord has qualified Christians to judge. So the first thing we see in this passage is that God has qualified Christians to judge the world, Paul says. Starting with verse 1, Dare any of you, having a matter against another, go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? In Revelation 2.26, Jesus says, And he who overcomes and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give power over the nations. We read earlier in Daniel chapter 7 of God saying that his saints will be given to possess the kingdom. That same kingdom that in previous verses were given, that kingdom was given to the Son of Man, Jesus Christ. In Revelation 3.21, we see the Lord saying, To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne. And as I also overcame and sat down with my Father on his throne. Believers, in other words, share in Christ's rule over the world. That's not fully consummated yet, but there is a way in which we share in that rule. In that sense, we will judge the world. Now, you'll recall that back in chapter 4 of 1 Corinthians, we saw that God alone is judge of his people. Is Paul contradicting what he said in chapter 4 here in chapter 6 now? Well, of course, in fact, no. Uh, he, he's talking about judgment in two different senses of the term. You and I cannot judge the way that God can judge. 
We can't judge what's in another person's heart, for example. Only God can do that, and that's what Paul was talking about in chapter 4. Only God can judge what's in another human being's heart. Because only he knows what is in that heart. He alone knows what's in the heart of men and women. But as we saw back in chapter 4, we can and must judge by the outward fruits someone bears. And we learned in chapter 5, when a professing believer is bearing bad fruit, is clearly living unrepentantly in sin, we must judge by that fruit that he is bearing and discipline him. If he refuses to repent, we have to ultimately treat him as if he's an unbeliever, Paul says. But here and now in this world, the church has no authority to, for example, discipline unbelievers for their sins. We saw that last time, didn't we? The limits of church discipline. One of the things we saw is that church discipline is for what? The church. And it's not for us to enact on the world outside of the church. However, we will live and reign with Christ in the world to come, we're told. And I would argue that there's a good evidence or a good bit of evidence from Scripture that there will be an age before Christ's return when the gospel prevails in the world and the judges and the rulers of this world will be believers in Christ. They will be saints. Psalm 47.9, the princes of the peoples, the Hebrew there is the plural for the nations, have gathered as the people of the God of Abraham for the shields of earth, that's an expression for earthly governments, belong to God. And certainly... In the world to come, Christians will live and reign with Jesus Christ. We have that promise reiterated to us numerous times. And even now, believers in this world share in that reign already. As we have already been seated with Jesus in the heavenly places, as Paul says in Ephesians 2.6, for example. So God, therefore, has qualified Christians to judge the world. We can make judgments about the world, therefore. Number two, God has qualified Christians to judge even angels. In verse three, do you not know that we shall judge angels? There's been a lot of debate uh, about just what Paul means with the word judge here when he says that we will judge angels. At the very least, it speaks of ruling or governing. A judge in Scripture is not necessarily somebody who makes judgments in court cases in every case, but but somebody who has ruling authority. So this at least speaks of ruling and governing. 2 Peter 2.4 speaks of fallen angels being reserved for judgment by God. And so uh, it seems that that's God's prerogative to do and not ours so much. Jude verse 6 speaks of the same thing, pointing to judgment day when Christ will judge the angels. And as believers participate in Christ's reign, there may be some sense in which we will participate, though, in that judgment. But in terms of judgment being simply ruling over something, Hebrews 1.4 says, are, are they, speaking of angels, are they not also, are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister, that is to serve, for those who will inherit salvation? So in that sense... The church certainly judges angels. We have, in some sense, authority over them. Some people's imaginations run wild with that kind of thing, and they'll think that, well, Christians have a host of angels that each one of us can command. Well, Scripture doesn't give us that kind of detail. 
But there is certainly some sense in which angels are given by God to be serving spirits, ministering spirits to his people. And therefore, we see that God has qualified the church to judge angels in some sense. Number three, then, God has qualified Christians to judge earthly disputes between believers. This was Paul's reason for pointing out that Christians participate in some way in Christ's rule over the world and over angels. If you are qualified collectively by God to rule over the world and over angels, why aren't you qualified in the here and now to judge earthly disputes between one another? So he asks in verse 2, And if the world will be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? The world will be judged by Christians. How then could we be incapable of judging rightly in small matters? He's not saying that each one of us has the same level of wisdom. But he's collectively and particularly in our midst, there have to be wise people. He asks later, is there not even one wise among you who could do this? Notice, by the way, that the people Paul calls saints, at the beginning of verse 2, he calls you in the second half of the verse. He's not talking about some special category of Christians here. God has made all believers holy. That's what the word saint means. Our our English word saint actually comes from a Latin term that means holy ones. And uh, the uh, word that it's translating here is uh, hagios, hagios, the plural, uh, saints, the holy ones in Greek. Saints, that word does not refer to some special category among God's people but it refers to all of God's people, all believers. The world will be judged, Paul says, by believers. How then could we be unqualified to judge small matters? In verse 3, he ramps it up. Do you not know that we shall judge angels? How much more things that pertain to this life? If the church, if Christians are given authority over spiritual matters, even to the point of having authority over angels, can't we deal with some small earthly matters? If God qualifies us to live and reign with Christ over the world to come and even over angels, how much more, Paul asks, must we be qualified to handle some earthly dispute among ourselves? That's not to say that there is never a situation in which a professing believer might have to face another one in a court of law a false brother or one who is in serious sin or error in regard to these instructions in 1 Corinthians 6 may take a matter to court and you may be compelled to defend yourself. If an actual crime under the laws of the state has been committed, you may have to bring charges or give testimony against a professing brother or sister in Christ. But God has qualified Christians to settle earthly disputes between believers, especially since such disputes will almost always involve accusations of sin. And certainly, the church has been given the power of the keys to deal with the matter of sin among ourselves and to call one another to repentance. In that case, it's a matter of church discipline that we saw in weeks prior to this when we were dealing with the necessity of church discipline. Let's use the example from this passage. One brother is accusing another of having apparently defrauded or cheating him. Let's let's say that that Harold 
I'll pick him because he's in front here. Uh, Harold paid me for goods and services, and then he believes I failed to fulfill what he paid me to do. Well, he needs to follow the Matthew 18 pattern first. Before he takes this to the secular government, he needs to come to me because it's a matter of sin. So I agree I've sinned. If he comes to me to deal with the matter and I agree I've sinned, well, I'll repent, which means I'll give him the goods or services that he paid for. And I'll ask his forgiveness. And he will have gained his brother in addition to whatever service I was supposed to render. If I don't agree, well, he can bring one or two of you with him. And... Uh, maybe you'll find I'm in the right, and then the matter's closed, or uh, and the, you know, Harold's mistaken, or maybe those two who come with Harold will agree, I committed a sin here. I did indeed cheat Harold. So they'll call me to repentance, and if I repent, the matter is settled. If not, they can bring the matter to the church, bring it to the elders. Since this is a hypothetical dispute between elders, since I picked Harold out, we might even need to bring it to the presbytery. But you get the jest. If I repent, then I'm going to do what I was obligated to do. I'm going to be restored. If I don't repent, I can eventually be cast out of the church's fellowship. Again, as we saw before, the, the thrust of that, the reason for that, is to get me to repent and to be restored. By the way, since I would then, if I were cast out, be treated like a heathen. At that point, now Harold would have exhausted all of his options within the church to get me to repent, and he could then call the civil magistrate to this if it's a matter that's appropriate to bring to the civil magistrate, which that would be. It would be a matter of theft or fraud. But that's not before he's exhausted all of the options within the church. God has qualified Christians to judge these kinds of earthly disputes between believers because they deal with sin. Therefore, several applications follow. Number one, Christians should not take disputes within the church to the courts of the civil government. Again, there might come a time when you have to, but that should only be after you've exhausted all of the within-the-church options. Notice Paul's astonished tone in verse 1. Dare any of you? Having a matter against another go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Pretty clear that they haven't even considered that an option. They just go to the legal authorities. Why would we want to rush to unbelievers, Paul is asking here? Uh, those who are still under sin themselves to settle disputes between believers whom God has declared righteous and who are being sanctified by him and therefore collectively are much better qualified than earthly leaders, to deal with these matters. Verse 4, If then you have judgments concerning things pertaining to this life, do you appoint those who are least esteemed by the church to judge? The Greek of the verse is actually pretty difficult, so there's a lot of uh, dispute over exactly how best to translate that. But the general idea is pretty clear, and it's simple. The church least esteems, holds in least honor, those who are outside of the church, those who are outside of Christ. It makes little sense that we would think an unbeliever is more qualified to settle our internal disputes than we would be collectively. Like saying there's a dispute between two surgeons over what the best treatment option for their patient is, 
and oh, well, let's 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 go ask a construction worker what he thinks about this. Let's go ask a lawyer what he thinks about this. That wouldn't make any sense. You want to ask another doctor, don't you? <clears throat> it makes very little sense that we would think an unbeliever would be more qualified to judge church matters than believers. So number two, Christians should settle disputes that arise between believers among believers. Verse five, I say this to your shame. Is it so that there is not a wise man among you? Not even one? There should be several, right? Who will be able to judge between his brethren? And he's not saying that every Christian has the same level of wisdom to deal these things out, but together we should be able to find among ourselves enough of us that can handle these things. We saw back in chapter 2 that believers have been given godly wisdom. So why wouldn't we think that we would be wise enough among ourselves to handle some of these disputes? Believers have differing gifts and differing amounts. But between them, the Corinthian Christians should have been able to judge these things. And so Paul says, it's to your shame that you haven't handled this this way. Certainly they should have some elders in their midst who have the wisdom to handle this. But instead, they've acted like they couldn't find even one person in all the church, in the whole congregation, who was wise enough to be able to arbitrate between brothers and sisters who were having a conflict. And Paul says that's shameful. Christians should settle disputes between believers among believers. If we haven't even tried, and we take it to the secular government, what a shame. Number three, Christians must be willing to accept having been wronged by a brother or sister before parading the church's problems before unbelievers. It's not saying that we ultimately do need to accept that, but here he's saying that that would be better than what the Corinthians have done. As we noted earlier, it might be a different, uh, might be different once a person has been excommunicated. But even then, it might be better just to drop the matter rather than to bring ridicule on the church. Rather than letting the world think Christians treat each other horribly and litigiously, and rushing to court to sue one another, we should be more willing to accept the harm that's done to us. Verses 6 and 7, But brothers go to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. How therefore, now therefore, excuse me, it is already an utter failure for you that you go to law against one another. Why do you not rather accept wrong? Why do you not rather let yourselves be cheated? Again, if the person in question is, has been cast out, has been excommunicated, a lawsuit might be acceptable. But that's only after all other options within the church have been exhausted. They've been used up. If you're not willing to judge the matter within the church among brothers and sisters, it's better to put up with having been wronged than to go unbeliever to go before unbelievers for it, for that kind of judgment. Paul says bringing church matters before the civil magistrate is an utter failure. I don't know about you, but I, I don't want Christ or one of his apostles looking at me someday and saying, boy, you utterly failed. Christians are better off accepting having been wronged than to do that. Fourth, then, Christians must not cheat each other out of the opportunity to repent. Verse 8, no, you yourselves do wrong and cheat, and you do these things to your brethren. Now, in context, 
it seems that what Paul's talking about there is he's saying that, that even the ones who believe they've been defrauded and then have brought this case before the civil magistrate before bringing it to the church, they are in a sense cheating their brothers and sisters in Christ. Because when they went straight to the secular government rather than to the church, they were not giving their Christian brother the opportunity to repent. They were not taking him through that Matthew 18 process. It cheats our brothers and sisters out of the opportunity to be corrected and to be restored through that biblical process of church discipline. Christians must not cheat one another out of that opportunity. We must not withhold the blessings of church discipline from one another. And as hard as church discipline is to conduct, and certainly must be hard to be the one on the receiving end of it, it's better than being lost. It's better than being stuck in our sins. It's a wonderful opportunity. It's actually a gift that Christ has given to the church. God qualifies Christians to judge. Qualifies us to judge the world and angels, Paul says, and therefore definitely disputes between believers. And therefore, because of that, we have some applications. Do not take disputes within the church to the courts of the civil government, at least not before all options within the church are exhausted. Do, positively then, do settle disputes that arise between believers among believers. Christ has given us a biblical process in Matthew 18 to follow that, that we that I went through there with the example of me and Harold, where I defrauded Harold. Uh, that was hypothetical, just so you know. <laughs> but uh, if I had defrauded him, then he would have come to me and accused me of the sin to my face, talked to me about it, called me to repentance. If I refused to repent, then he would bring one or two others with him. If they find that Harold is indeed right, I've sinned, they call me to repentance, I can repent and be restored, then then Harold has gained his brother, as well as whatever good or service that I was supposed to provide for him. And then if he, if I didn't listen, then you could bring it to the church, and if I don't listen then, then I could be cast out even. But we shouldn't, before we've exhausted all of those options, bring those problems, those disputes, to the secular courts, to the courts of this world. Do settle disputes that arise between believers among believers. Also, be more willing to be wronged by your brother or sister in Christ than to parade your problems between yourselves, between yourself and another church member before unbelievers. Don't cheat your brother or sister out of the opportunity to repent, to be corrected by church discipline. So often we're very timid about that kind of thing. And again, like we said weeks ago, you, we're not talking about bringing up every little slip or stumble. Each, each one of us stumbles in sin. We sin in small ways against one another fairly frequently. But we don't have to bring all of those up constantly. Those aren't matters for church discipline, but matters of serious and ongoing sin where somebody's not repenting. Again, the example that we use today was of fraud or cheating someone. I've been paid for a service that I'm not rendering. Well, that's a, a matter of an ongoing sin that needs to be dealt with. And then there's a biblical process of church discipline that we use to deal with that. If you have been truly sinned against in an ongoing way, seriously wronged, don't deny 
your brother or your sister in Christ the opportunity for that process of church discipline, to call him or her to repentance, to be restored to a good covenant relationship with Christ and with all of his people, and to to be restored in your relationship through that kind of repentance. What a blessing that indeed is. Well, let's pray. Lord, we thank you that as we already reign with Christ, who reigns over the whole creation, we with him not only already have a share in his rule, but we know that in the world to come we will judge the world and even angels. Help us therefore in the here and now to judge righteously on earth as we deal with earthly disputes between believers that we might not bring dishonor, but rather honor upon the name of Christ in the world. For we do now pray in that precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen.